You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 56. I'm your host today, Sarah, with my co-host, Jeb Card. And today we're talking with Jason Colvalito. Today we'll be discussing all things Lovecraft, Cthulhu, and possibly the Necronomicon. We talk about the archaeological influences on some of Lovecraft's writing, as well as influences that he has had on writers down the line. Get ready to think critically. Everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I'm your host today, Sarah, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeb Card. How's it going, Jeb? All right, we are now into classes. I have met my students. We've done exercises. We've worked with artifacts. It's really great. I'm getting paid again. That's always nice. And today we have special guest Jason Covalito, and he is returning to the show after I after a year, actually. I think this is it's, almost a year exactly. It's, that sounds about right. So how's it going, Jason? Hello. It's going well. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for being here. And today we're going to kind of go over different topics as they apply to Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos. Because Jason has really made, I mean, very early on, you made your name pointing out ties between alternative archaeology, pseudo-archaeology, bullshit archaeology, whatever label you want to use, and Pulp Fiction, specifically Lovecraft, and making, like, really, I mean, some of these things, you know, people had alluded to this and that, but you really went and did some of the groundwork, and, and you've made this reputation of doing the groundwork on on the things you're working on. Like, just, I'm now going to go translate a medieval French text, because why not? And you've really been doing that. And the last time we had you on, there were all these cool discussions. And the thing, and I wasn't a cause at that point, and that's why we're doing this. Because the, the thing that we didn't really get, I think, enough into, because there was so much to talk about last time, was all the Lovecraft stuff. Now, for those of our listeners who are not aware, and this is actually possible, Jason, how are we going to describe one Mr. Howard Phillips Lovecraft? Who is this and why the hell do we care? Well, H.P. Lovecraft was a reclusive author who lived in Providence for most of his life and New York City for a small period of it. He wrote a lot of uh, supernatural stories that sort of crossed the boundary between horror, science fiction, and fantasy, and involved in a really rough-and-ready sort of description, uh, space aliens coming down to the Earth and essentially acting as the gods of mythology, they were responsible for building great cities and um, inventing bizarre technologies and ultimately for creating the human race. All the sorts of things you see in modern ancient astronaut theories. And Lovecraft wrote a series of disconnected stories that sort of took this idea, sometimes literally, sometimes more figuratively, sometimes more supernaturally, sometimes more scientifically, but uh, had it as a background for a series of horror, science fiction, and fantasy stories. And these stories took this idea that had been sort of brewing in the world of theosophy and 19th century Victorian anthropology and sort of rang them through a, a filter and put them into a pre-digested form that allowed them to be transmitted to the 20th century in a way that fringe historians could digest easily and use as a springboard for their own research. Um, Make, making, the, making them yes. more material, making them more material. Oh, certainly. Lovecraft's fiction, you know, is obviously mostly fantasy. It's not 
literally real. He had a lot of um, ideas that mixed fact and fiction together, but the people who were inspired by him looked at those stories and said, well, you know, what if that really were true? And then they went back and tried to match real-world material to the fantasy Lovecraft had created, and they did so in a way that mostly involved going back to the sources that Lovecraft used and sort of teasing out the uh, underlying, we don't want to call it fact per se, but nonfiction, I guess, is the right term. Real world world lore, like things that he had not made up and exist in the real world, whether you think that they're correct descriptions of, you know, reality. So, Jason, are you saying that people started taking Lovecraft's writing literally and they wanted to to fact check it and make it real? Well, that's a very interesting question because what we end up having is a series of sort of overlapping situations. You have, for example, people who actually did that quite literally, like Jacques Berzon and Louis Pauls in France who wrote The Morning of the Magicians. They were huge fans of Lovecraft. They cited Lovecraft explicitly in their books, not only The Morning of the Magicians, but in uh, Bergier's latest bo- uh, later books like um, Extraterrestrial Vis- Visitation in Prehistoric Times. This in the late 50s and early 60s, correct? The Morning of the Magicians was in the 60s, and The Extraterrestrial Visitations, I think, was published in the, in the 70s. Okay. But in those books, and there were some in between those, of course, they actually cited Lovecraft by name, and yep. they tried to take bits and pieces of Lovecraft and find find it in the real world. And he was, those two weren't alone. There was also um, Peter Colosimo, or Colosimo, I'm not quite sure how he pronounced I've, it. I've heard it the latter, but I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, he wrote a book called Not of This World, and it cites huge passages of Lovecraft as though these were real, <laughs> factual things that happened. So he was literally trying to take Lovecraft and say, oh, all these fiction writers like Lovecraft had, had it right. This all really happened. So no, he, but he, would, he who, cited Lovecraft like he would say this is real, but he would name Lovecraft versus like Maurice Doriol. Colosimo quoted chunks of Lovecraft. Oh and God. unfortunately, I have not read the Italian original. I've only read the English translation, which is very, very poor. The translator didn't bother to go back and find the Lovecraft passages. He just retranslated from Italian. Hmm. So the translation is so poor that it's not entirely clear to me whether Colosimo was actually saying was he was using it as examples of nonfiction. He did in other places use actual pieces of Pulp Fiction and claim it was real. Um, or whether he was saying in these particular cases that Lovecraft was reporting something that was real under the guise of fiction. But either way, he was trying to convey the idea that these stories had a, a, a real-world component to them. Yeah. So and you that, have that one side, yeah. uh, the people who were doing that quite literally. And then you have the people who were inspired by... Lovecraft and the whole weird fiction milieu of the 1930s a little more indirectly. People like Richard Shaver and... uh, Ray Barker. Yes, who, um, you know, were coming out of the Pulp Fiction field. They were undoubtedly familiar with this. We can't say for certain that they drew specifically from a particular Lovecraft story, but their own work has striking similarities to ideas you find in Lovecraft and is, you know, clearly a development of, if not him specifically, then the broader weird fiction field that he was writing in at the time. And then you have the third group who were inspired by one, the other, or both, and were working entirely from a secondary emanation of it, and weren't even aware specifically of Lovecraft. Yeah. 
So they, they were they were in essence making mythology and not even knowing its origin. And this stuff started during his life. I mean, Bill Lumley, who was a fan of his, I think, in the Buffalo, New York area, he would write letters to Lovecraft about how it was all true and they were channeling the spirits of the great old ones. And Lovecraft would write to his friends and go, Bill's fun, but he's clearly bonkers. And, and I don't think we should – I mean it's – there's a reason this all gloms around Lovecraft. I mean, there's that famous, very famous quote of his that in order to make a, a weird story work, it has to be assembled with all the care of a hoax. So, and he did, and yeah. he did that. So is it safe to say then that Lovecraft, though the author of a lot of this, did not himself believe that no. there were space aliens oh, sure. or yeah. the, the old no. ones were living in the Antarctic or anything like that? Yeah. If I, he would correct people who would who would ask about this, either about the Necronomicon or, or or other things. He didn't want people believing that, but oops. Well, you know, now, that's the problem with art. Uh, Once it's out of your hands, you have no control over it. Exactly. But one thing we should note is that there are a whole group of people now who pretend that Lovecraft really did believe all this and was secretly conveying this information under the cover of fiction because he couldn't tell the truth. A lot of those yeah. people... Lovecraftian magic field and uh, yeah. believe that they can contact the great old ones and use them to perform ritual magic. I used to know a yeah. guy who believed that. Yeah. And there's and there's conspiracy theorists to do that. And, and honestly, you know, if that if your LARP is that amazing, well, I can't really I can't really knock it too much as long as, you know, you're not. Uh, yeah, that's I'm not that's saying much... it always comes out of the gaming world. But yeah, the guy that I knew did was was a good a heavy gamer. So but you know, you get well, immersed the crossover, in it. Though, yeah, you know, exactly. It isn't just a gaming thing, like the Simon Necronomicon, the famous paperback oh, yeah. edition of Lovecraft's yeah. text, written in the 70s. That book comes out of the Lovecraftian magic idea and supposedly is a grimoire that could really be used to perform magical spells. Right. And now a lot of people have made the case, they say that an occultist named Peter Lavenda is the man who wrote that book. Lavenda has denied this, and he denied it to me specifically as well. But um, the idea that these that Lovecraft could be separated from the world around him it just doesn't quite hold water when you see how his ideas have influenced so many different and incredibly diverse manifestations of the occult and the supernatural and the bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have everything from the people who are saying the gods are real, let's worship them, all the way over to ancient astronaut theorists who are saying they were mistaken for gods, they're really space aliens, and the, uh, you know, Cthulhu drives a UFO. And it's amazing yeah. the sheer diversity of ideas and opinions that come out of uh, a rather small set of stories. Lovecraft wrote, I think it's a total of about 65 stories, depending on how you count them. Yeah. And, and by the way, if anybody wants to read any of these, and we're going to talk about some of Lovecraft's faults, don't get me wrong. All of them are on Donovan Laux's site, hplovecraft.com, and they are the they are the corrected versions because these were these were printed in the pulps, which you know, as you might imagine, maybe not did not have the most perfect editorial departments, and so scholars, including S.T. Joshi, have gone, or I think Joshi's most of them have gone and gone back to his manuscripts and other evidence and made at times significant corrections. And so if you go to Donovan Laux's site, hblovecraft.com, all of the fiction, because it's all in the public domain, is all there. Just out of curiosity, uh, what are the corrections they're making? Just the grammar or punctuation or 
Jason, do you have any good? Yeah, I mean, my understanding is like sometimes there's words missing, other times it's often it's often punctuation, but which includes things like in comes. many cases, in many cases, Lovecraft favored archaic and British spellings, ah, and yeah. those have been restored into corrected versions. Color with and the in, U. Yes, and in a very few cases, there are a few lines or uh, words that have been changed or omitted, and some of those have small but significant changes to the meaning of the story. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. They're, 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 they're not like whole new stories or anything, but... No, certainly not. In yeah. most cases, you're talking just a handful of words in an entire story, yeah. um, and a few that have been, had been cut for length when they were published in the original Cults. But still, it's still it's still you know valuable valuable work in making sure that's all that's all done. And there's tons of other information on on uh, Mr. Laux's uh, site. There are all kinds of background and and there's tons out there. I mean, there's a whole like Lovecraftian scholarly community and journals and and all of this that is part you know tied into a fan community, but also very much critical stuff. And there's been a blossoming. And, and Jason, your your book, and you mentioned it earlier, but I want I want to say it again: the the cult of the alien gods, which I remember correctly, is, is two thousand and five. That there were works before, but you kind of hit a little before the big, huge kind of second. There was a big Lovecraft popular boom in the in the nineteen seventies, and then we started experiencing one about a year or two after your book came out, and and we haven't really left it. I mean, for frick's sake, they like make Monopoly games at Cthulhu on them now. I am not making that up. They made him cuddly. They, yeah, they did. I, I remember seeing the very, I remember seeing the very first ads for plush Cthulhu's in the pages of the unspeak on the Unspeakable Oath, a gaming magazine specifically for Cthulhu, in like 1991, and it was or 92, and it was like this new thing. It's like watching a whole new horrible thing emerge. Yeah. Yes, uh, my book did uh, come out in 2005, and that was right around the time of the. What I would like this, what I guess what I'd say is the internet-inspired Lovecraft revival. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way of putting um, it. That's a good way of putting it. And what's really interesting is when my book came out, it got really terrible reviews. I mean, people just hated it. And part of that was for the reason that the uh, publisher did not the best job in the world of editing it, and there were some editing errors. But what's interesting is that in the years since, a lot of the people who were critical of it are now less critical of it. And a lot of people who were initially opposed to the thesis in that book that Lovecraft had an impact on fringe history and the ancient astronaut theory, the alternative history, have come around to the idea that, you know what, maybe this really did happen. I think that if I were to write the book again today, I might not have stated the case quite so bluntly, and it would certainly have had a lot more evidence, but it was, you know, everything I knew in 2005, and yeah. I've uncovered a lot more evidence since then, and can make a much stronger case now than I probably could have then. Are you on a new book, or are you thinking about revising your 2005 book? Well, the publisher has the rights to it, so long as they keep it in print. Um, so there's not much I can do in terms of revising it unless oh. the publisher amenable to it and okay. so far they are quite happy with it the way it is in terms of a new book it would really depend i guess on finding a publisher and at the moment there haven't been a lot of publishers who are terribly interested in looking at the topic again well one thing i, I would say though if you were going to do this again the, the hook i would very much suggest and maybe we should now bleep the next 30 seconds somebody takes <laughs> it but it's it's all over your website 
one of the things that you've been heavily arguing. You, you make a couple. There's, there are certain points that show up. And by the way, I, I guess we haven't said this, and you've been on the show before, but JasonColavito.com, you've got oodles of texts, and we may talk about that more. Oodles of primary documents. That's something you've been working on. But, you know, the sort of the main attraction there in many respects is you pretty much daily, machine-like, disturbingly so, put out, you know, a lot of material on, on blog posts about these topics. And one of the ones that shows up again and again, it's, it's been there less because you kind of did it to death, like to the point where it needed to be done, was you kind of were really looking at, and especially at Ancient Aliens and Lovecraft, and I think this is actually a really important sort of thing, you were looking at what can be sort of subsumed under the, the term watchers, but it ties into a larger kind of myth cycle to sort of say how Lovecraft might have said it in sort of the Bronze Age, Middle East, or version, some versions that are more famous than others. And they look a lot like Lovecraft. And, and, and again, this call is called the watchers, although often the word Nephilim gets thrown in here, and that's become really popular sort of alternative ideas. What's going on there and how can we sort of tie that in into that? Well, the story of the Watchers and the Nephilim is apparently, as far as I can tell, sort of the root of almost all of the different fringe history ideas. The story comes ultimately from the from Mesopotamia, where you can trace it back to some of the oldest layers of myth from Sumeria and Babylonia. But it's best known from that very short mysterious passage in the book of Genesis, where it says that there were giants in the earth in those days. Genesis 6-4, if I remember correctly. Exactly, yes. Genesis 6-4, where it talks about the uh, sons of God coming in unto the daughters of men, and depending on which version and translation you prefer, either uh, mating with the daughters of men to produce giants, or just happening to do it at the same time there were giants, or maybe they were the giants. It, but um, that particular very brief passage in Genesis spawns this huge number of strange ideas trying to explain the role of supernatural creatures in the world before the Great Flood. And we see that it branches off into an enormous and incredibly complex web of mythologies. Uh, one branch of the mythology plays it pretty straight, and it talks about fallen angels, cannibal giants, and demons. And that branch goes off into the sort of a supernatural mythology. Another branch tries to explain it in rational terms, talking about how, well, the sons of God were really the sons of Seth, and the uh, daughters of men were the daughters of Cain, and this is really a story about intertribal disputes among the early peoples. And that branch kind of goes off and eventually becomes the sort of racist idea about there being a master race and polluted mud race and it goes into this whole idea of white identity politics which again and often then, is preserving victorian ideas of race i mean that's one of these things we've been harping on a lot yes and um the idea of the watchers feeds into the alien mythology because you know space aliens or angels coming down from heaven sounds a lot like you know ufos and but you also have yet another version of the story which um, focuses on the prophet Enoch trying to preserve the wisdom of the Watchers before the Flood by building uh, pillars in which he inscribes all of the wisdom of the heavens. And there are many different versions. Sometimes it's Enoch, sometimes it's Seth, sometimes it's one of the sons of Noah. It's all over the place because the story is so old and has been retold so many times. 
But that version feeds into a number of different mythologies of its own. In one version of it, it ends up becoming the um, pyramid mythology favored by the Arabs in the Middle Ages, in which it talks about how the pyramids were built as these pillars to preserve all of the wisdom of time, which feeds into this idea that the pyramids contain secret wisdom that only fringe historians can discover. And That's that kind of where that comes from. Yeah, Pyramidiacy goes in one direction. We have to go to break in a moment. I'd sure. actually like to pick up on that because you've done a ton of work on that topic. And I think I think that's something that because I think that heavily ties into a lot of this Lovecraft stuff. One thing I wanted it to say, before we, the thing I want to go to oh. before we go to break is first time I read Genesis six four. That was my reaction. Like I remember reading that and going, "Oh my god, this is just like ancient alien stuff." I mean, I was a kid. I rem I remember having. I think Von Daniken actually talks about a very similar sort of reaction in one of mm -hmm. his sort of autobiographical intros or or whatevers. So um, I guess I can't blame him. I just, you know, I'm not a Swiss hotel clerk. I didn't go to prison. So anyway. Let's go to break real quick. And yes. when we come back, let's go back to the pyramids thing. Because that was yeah, let's, pretty cool. Yeah, let's, let's unpack that more. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and employment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the jobs page for job listings in contract archaeology. Post a job for just $50. All of PCS's jobs are verified and checked for completeness. Find PCS jobs at www.pcscourses.com forward slash jobs. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. And we are back. And Jason, could you, can we back up a little bit and talk about the whole pyramids being the pillars of knowledge and, and uh, go forward from there again? Sure. One of the things we see in sort of medieval mythology is an amplification, a very ancient idea that Enoch or one of the other prophets or somebody who was related to Noah, some ancient figure had built two pillars. And on these, and this pillars, is mostly uh, in the Muslim world, right? Uh, no, actually. You can oh, okay. find it uh, pretty much everywhere. Okay. The story kind of originates way, way back in Babylonian times when nice. they talked about how the people who were on the ark buried tablets full of wisdom to recover after the flood. And that story translates over into Jewish lore, where it's taken up in the stories of Enoch or in the most famous version given by uh, Flavius Josephus, Seth, who does the carving of the pillars. Okay. But um, this story has so many different versions that you can find, and it's not just among Jews or Muslims, but also Christians. But the Christians inherit a very, very limited version of this story. They inherit the one that Flavius Josephus gave, and they sort of take that, and they don't really do a lot with it. It shows up in uh, chronologies from the Middle Ages, and most famously, it's taken up by Freemasons. The Freemasons used that mythology to claim that Enoch had created tablets of wisdom that he buried under Solomon's temple, and this would become the treasure of in eventual lore of the uh, Masons or the Templars or whoever who yeah. went to the temple and dug it all up. This is what the pillars so are in Mason tradition? Well, there's two different sets of pillars in Freemasonry. You have the pillars that were the uh, pillars that stood in front of Solomon's temple, okay. and those are the official pillars. And then you have this myth that was inspired by the Enoch pillars 
And here it's given as tablets of wisdom. And we can go into even more complicated details where there's actually yet another set of pillars, but that's not really here nor there. The, <laughs> um, double, the double secret pillars. Well, you see, they have yet another version of the story in which Enoch, Hermes, and uh, ah, Zoroaster yes. all have pillars, and their pillars have the secrets of music. And so that's a whole other set of pillars that's that is inspired by the same myth. Okay. So wow. that's all one part of it. The other part of it is the story of the pyramids. And in the story of the pyramids, it's really interesting because you see these different threads of fringe history start to come together. By late antiquity, the Christians who were living in Egypt were sort of trying to Christianize the pagan past. Mm -hmm. These are the folks so that, we, were, that, are, that are the Copts basically today, like their yes, descendants. Their descendants are the Copts today, yes. And though we don't have their surviving texts, we're able to reconstruct from references in the Arab historians and from the Byzantine historians like George Sincellus some of what they wrote. And there's a pretty good uh, consensus that some of the Christian historians of late antiquity had suggested that the Egyptian hieroglyphs and the great and the uh, were found in the temples that these were the sacred writings that Enoch or Seth or whoever had inscribed before the flood to preserve wisdom. And this was, you know, at the end of antiquity when people were no longer really able to read hieroglyphs and they were starting to wonder what these things said, what could they be. Right. So one of these, one of these things one of these things that a lot of people because we can read hieroglyphs now that and this is the thing I'm, I'm actually gonna be teaching about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of people forget or never knew that re, you know until the Rosetta Stone in, in 17 was it 98 if I remember correctly uh, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt uh, there were no ancient writing systems that had that had died died in common use that were readable now we're used to the idea oh you go to a wall you read an ancient writing that idea but hieroglyphs had never been forgotten they had become by the Renaissance and by the Middle Ages especially by the Renaissance these mystical pre-linguistic writings in the in the conception yeah. of, of many people uh and you know it's right in the name sacred writings and that comes even from the greeks yes. who had been exposed to ancient egyptian and they had egyptian priests like well this is what this means but they had turned it into symbolic thought by the renaissance so, like all these ideas of like oh if you read a thing in hieroglyphs magic happens i and think that largely true, comes from that and that, that was true not just in Europe, but also in the Muslim world. Right. And one of the reasons for that is because the um, hermetic philosophers, especially the alchemists, took and up hermetic residence. Comes, what is hermetic? I know what it is, but tell our audience like, the where that comes idea, from. The hermetic idea, it comes from Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great Hermes, the um, kind of compound god who is a sort of Greek version of Toth. Yeah, the, the, god, the god, god of, of both knowledge and civilization and yes. writing. And he, in, in Egyptian mythology, Toth had written sacred books. And in the Greco-Egyptian kind of hybrid idea, this becomes Hermes writing sacred books. Yeah. And what you see is that the Christians who were living in Egypt at the time, and this is inherited by both the Christians in Europe and the Muslims who took over Egypt after the 7th century, they take this idea that Hermes wrote these sacred books and combine it with the idea that Enoch had written these sacred uh, tablets or sacred pillars of wisdom. So they identify Hermes with Enoch 
and in the case of the Islamic world, also both of them with the prophet Idris. And all three of these figures become one. So you have this idea that there's this sacred wisdom that's inscribed on pillars or tablets or temple walls, and that this is all part of the pre-flood knowledge of the fallen angels and the Nephilim. So if you've heard of hermetic magic, that's where this comes from. I mean, this this becomes a major underpinning of the Western occult tradition. Exactly. But the thing is, the hermetic philosophers were actually living in the Egyptian temples that had been abandoned. They were doing alchemy inside these temples, so the temples (laughs) themselves had become magic places where the writings on the walls were the sacred writings of Hermeticism. Honestly, that's just kind of metal. That's just kind of metal right there. What happens is by around the year 1000, probably a little bit before, but we don't know exactly, a myth arises that it isn't just the temples that were preserving these pre-flood writings as the Persian uh, astrologer Abu Mashar had written. But instead, as we find first in the Akbar al-Zaman, written around a thousand, give or take fifty years, we find that it's now the the story that the pyramids themselves were the pillars uh, from before the flood, and Hermes had created the pyramids to preserve the sacred knowledge, and that it was inscribed either on the casing stones of the pyramids or on secret chambers within the pyramids, and they were filled with all sorts of treasure and technology and even dead bodies in translucent stasis chambers. <laughs> you have all this science fiction stuff that it is really amazing that you're here around 900, 1000 AD and you get this bizarre science fiction that wouldn't be out of place on TV today. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and so what's interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. What's interesting is that not everybody was happy with that. And the story of Hermes and the pyramids sort of transmutes into even more bizarre versions of it, where in uh, one case you get the story that it wasn't Hermes, but this guy named Surid, who was right. one of the giants uh, who lived before the flood. And he gets back to the watchers the and all of that. Right. Exactly. So you have all these different versions that are all related. And if you wanted to, you could create like a huge tree of branching right. versions of these stories. But hmm. – the bottom line is that the pyramid mythology that we have today, these stories of aliens building the pyramids or uh, lost civilizations hiding treasure in the pyramids or the pyramids having all sorts of fanciful measurements that hide earth secrets, right. all of that comes out of this Arab mythology. And it does so through a very few channels. Specifically, it comes from a guy named uh, John Greaves who wrote one of the very first modern treatises on the pyramids in the 7th century. Yes, it was the late 1600s, um, but it was best known from the reprint they did in around 1735, I want to say, in which he preserved one of the versions of the story. But it was better known from a 17th century French translation of one of these Arabic manuscripts by Murtada ibn al-Afif, who was himself copying what looks for all the world like he had the Akbar al-Zaman or a copy of whatever it was based on. And he didn't even have the whole story. He said that the copy he had was full of holes, so he was doing his best to fill in the gaps and figure out what it was saying. But his text, written around 1200 or so, gets uh, sent to France where the king of France's scholar-in-residence translates it into French. The original Arabic is lost, but the French survives, and a guy in England translates it into English a few years later. And that translation ends up inspiring 
all sorts of different ideas. And it's not just the fringe historians who read it and come up with their pyramid mythology, but it's also the Gothic writers were inspired to some of the uh, great monuments of Gothic literature and poetry by reading Murtada ibn al-Afif and taking romantic notions of Egypt and the pyramids from that text. And to bring it back to Lovecraft, something we've been talking about is the idea of a medieval Arab book that is then translated by a later sort of post-Reformation court astrologer, court mm -hmm. scholar to a major, major uh, European royal. If you know your yeah, Lovecraft, it's pretty much Ibn al -Afif. <laughs> yeah, th th those are the real ones. If you know your Lovecraft, of course, that's the Necronomicon yes. translated exactly. from Al-Azif through the Necronomicon of Oleus Wormus, but then through court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth I, John Dee. And I suspect that that's not an accident because all oh, of these certainly. things you've been talking about, all these Nephilim things, all these ideas, all these ideas of the 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 the, the notion that the pyramids were uh, were had mystical writings or, or mystical uh, measurements to them, these were very common both for interest in biblical things and also because we because archaeology was beginning to grope farther and farther into the past in the late 19th century. And, and as much as Lovecraft always talked about how hate he hated the Victorians, he kind of was one because. He largely self-educated himself off his grandfather's books. And one of the one of the very first Egyptologists, one of the very first scientific Egyptologists, Sir Flinders Petrie, we've talked about this before, he actually went as a young man to Egypt to investigate this because the Scottish Royal Astronomer was a friend of his father's, and the Scottish Royal Astronomer was a big proponent of this idea. Flinders Petrie went to Egypt. Found it was basically full of crap, not Egypt, but the idea. Uh, and he spent the rest of his life working on Egypt because he loved it so much and trying to protect its its ideas. But I think what I'm getting at <laughs> is that a lot of this stuff was very much in the air. And Lovecraft wouldn't even have had to have read one specific source or another specific source. He's sort of more or less taking what's around him and creating his own. So – how does this tie in with, with Lovecraft and, and the Nephilim? So if, if, if the Watchers and the Nephilim are basically these this lost, sort of super powerful, they've got ancient writings and ruins, how does Lovecraft map that out? What does he turn that into? Well, you can see that Lovecraft wasn't just drawing from one particular set of sources. Is he wasn't just looking at his grandfather's books of history. He's also drawing on Gothic literature mm -hmm. and on the occult literature of his day. And all three of those sources all drew from the same batch of ancient and medieval legends and lore. So when Lovecraft, for example, created the Necronomicon, the similarities to Murtada ibn al-Afif's text are obvious because he wasn't just seeing that in um, books about archaeology or ancient history. He was also seeing references to it in the Gothic literature that he so loved. Mm -hmm. uh, Percy Shelley, for example, made reference to it. So, you know, this idea keeps coming up time and again in different sources. And now I don't happen to know if Lovecraft knew immediately that this was all referring to the same stuff or whether he saw it as confirmation that, you know, this idea is happening again and again and again. Maybe this is something I should draw from. But certainly Lovecraft had been brought up in the uh, Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church in America, oh, yeah. and, and he was familiar with the biblical narrative so he knew about the idea of the fallen angels, and yeah. he, I mean, you know, consciously drew on these biblical parallels oh, and yeah. saw in in the literature both fictional and fringe 
in the occult the same reflection. So when he read like Helena Blavatsky's books and um, all that similar literature, he was seeing in it the idea of the fallen angels and how they were similar to all of these other stories of gods and giants. So when he abstracted that and turned it into the great old ones, he wasn't you know, inventing something entirely new as much as he was creating the definitive version of what everybody else had been talking about. Creating one with a deep time because he, he, he very much loves the idea of, you know, quintillions of years, you know, after quintillions of years, you know, great Cthulhu was ravening for delight once again. Uh, he, he loved this, although to be fair – Every time he's talking about a, a 300 million year old alien civilization, they somehow seem to have medieval Inca architecture in their buildings. But that's a neither here. Actually, that's exactly here or there. But you no, know, he he absolutely is. And, and again, I think it's because, like you're saying, of of the cultural milieu he's in, it's it's popping up everywhere here and there. And, and one thing I wanted to mention, and I think we can get to this in, in our in our third segment to some degree. I, I do kind of want to talk about sort of the, the geek Lovecraft stuff, and I think this also gets into some of the the detracting of Lovecraft that maybe needs to happen. Have you guys seen Prometheus, the movie? I have not seen it, but I saw the how it should have ended, so that's just as well, good. Yes, yes. Have you seen it, Jason? Actually, I never watched it. Okay, I own it. I need to watch it at some point, but I bring it up for a reason. I like now, first that you all, own this movie that you've never watched. That's actually many movies. Um, but one oh, of the reasons God. I bring it up is – now, Guillermo del Toro, he actually said he said one of the reasons he stopped working on his Mountains of Madness. The In case those of you who are not familiar at this point, I think we've lost everybody who's not a Lovecraft fan. Maybe not. Um, at the Mountains of Madness is, is sort of Lovecraft's big magnum Did opus of ancient of aliens business stuff. He wanted to. He really wants to. He should. Well, one – so basically it's anyway, kind anyway, of – Anyway, off track, off track. Sorry. No, no, no. It's not. It's not. And I, I want to get back to that. I want to get back to the geeky stuff. But uh, well, something I wanted to bring up specifically with the pyramid things and the and – the, Yes. Pillars. That movie has basically has Watcher style characters in it. I mean, it, it really does. It sort of turns the the engineers, whatever you want to call them, you know, that you find in the first book, the first the first Alien movie, turns them into these very Watcher like uh, characters in many respects. That movie begins to some degree after you see like ancient past with um, some archaeologists finding a map in a cave that leads them to outer space. That was not how that movie was initially supposed to start. They just yeah. decided that worked better. They were going to find the information that was going to take them to outer space and basically, in essence, find the Haven of the Watchers on obelisks underwater. Hmm. That's where they were going to find it. And that screams yeah. the ancient pillars of before of the antediluvian world. I, I can't imagine that that's an accident. I, I can't at all. Well, it wouldn't be the only movie to have the Watchers in it. The recent Noah movie – had the watchers as the as these big stone giants yeah they kind of looked like the... they looked like ants in the in the trailer like <laughs> lord of the rings ants i didn't did you see the movie i did not watch it no but yeah. there was a huge controversy over it well i'm sorry i only have so many hours in the day yeah, it's yeah. funny that we're all like talking about these movies we've never watched <laughs> i haven't watched. seen it either <laughs> I watch a lot of movies, but um, <laughs> unfortunately, some of these um, long, bloated, epic things are not right? really my cup of tea. No, Ru Russell, but... Cro Russell Crowe on a boat is not in your uh... – <laughs> But there was a lot of controversy over it because a lot of um, conservative Christians found it offensive that the movie would depict the watchers. And there was some speculation that the director of the film – was actually going for this uh, sort of Enochian Gnostic version of the flood myth that yeah. we find in stories like the Book I of Enoch he, rather than the Bible. 
I think he even talked about it a little because he saw it as a spit. I remember reading interviews because one of my colleagues, James Below, he's he he's been studying the Noah's Ark Park in, in Kentucky, and so it's been on his radar. And I read some interviews with the the uh, Aronofsky, the director, and he was very much kind of mentioning those. So we're going to take a break in a moment. I'd actually like to get into this sort of time. I mean, uh, there's some more specific archaeological things I think we can mention, and we're going to talk about some of these on future shows at Lovecraft. But I th- I think there's some I think there's some interesting things here that we could kind of dig into how Lovecraft kind of interdigitates with modern culture and I think that maybe tells us some things about how these other topics do as well and I think we kind of want to sort of play with one or the other of these when we come back. The Archaeology Podcast Network's conference channel is a collection of interviews from conferences around the world. Interviews are usually posted during the conference with minimal editing, so you, the listener, can be there virtually. Check out the conference feed at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash conferences. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back. And Jeb, you wanted to hit on some ideas here? Well, one thing that Jason was very much talking about how Lovecraft was kind of in the Anglican tradition and all that. One of the places I think that shows up really obviously is in the Dunwich Horror. And if you haven't read it, again, it's online at hblovecraft.com. It's also a classic and shame on you. And it is – I don't want to – Spoil it, I guess. But there are some certain inversions of Christianity or parodies, let's just say that. But the part I'm interested in is that's where we actually get our longest look at the Necronomicon, which we had been talking about in the previous section. And it's very King Jamesy. Like it's clearly supposed to be kind of a play on King James. And one of the things that's fascinating is that that piece right there actually has a significant sort of history with alternative and pseudo-archaeology and conspiracy theory. Jason, could you tell us more about that? Well, the piece in question, it uh, very clearly derives from a reading of famous passages in the King James Bible. You see phrases like after summer, winter, after winter, summer that have biblical echoes. You see things uh, about what was the other phrase that was so clearly biblical in there? Uh, as you shall, as ye shall know them, or yes, yeah. there's all sorts of biblical phrasing in there that you know has a very clear relationship to the biblical text, and that particular passage becomes quite influential because it sort of gives that mythological level to the story of ancient astronauts, and it's odd because there's actually two different versions of it. There's the one in the Dunwich Horror, and then there's the one that's almost more influential because it was better known at the time uh august derelith reused that passage in the lurker at the threshold oh, and i'd forgotten that i'd forgotten yes and he'd that. made significant changes to it he creates the whole myth of the fall of cthulhu by right. writing it into that passage mm. the idea that cthulhu didn't just fall under the waves because the earth had changed and you know the ocean washed over his island instead in Daryl's version, it's now this group of good gods that were battling the evil gods and punished Cthulhu by sinking his tower down under the sea. In case our so, listeners don't know, uh, August Derleth was one of Lovecraft's uh, correspondents, and through some twisted history that you can find in any number of places, he ends up basically be controlling the legal legacy 
And it was never entirely clear exactly how much of that was really clear letter law. But for decades, basically, if you Lovecraft invited and this is one of the reasons he's so important for geek culture today. And again, I think we'll talk about this a little. Um, but he invited open source. He would steal your stuff. You'd steal his stuff. And that would make it all resonate. He was a terrible, terrible capitalist. <laughs> which is why he died poor for many other reasons. But Durlith was not. Durlith, one, on the one hand, we probably wouldn't know much about Lovecraft if he had not found it or helped found Arkham House to, to publish this stuff. But once he did, he really kind of put his mark on it. And for decades, his sort of more Catholic kind of perspective on it and good gods and bad gods and all of that, as Jason had just said, kind of left a stamp. And that's 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 kind of forgotten now. But so for a what while you're there, is that was not the case. Duralith is the first fanfic writer of Lovecraft and Cthulhu. He's the first one who copyrights it. But yes. there, there were a bunch uh, of them. He wasn't right, but he's not the original author, but he continued to write stories anyway. Oh, he would write well, posthumous he... collaborations. Yes. With <laughs> ah, tricky, tricky. But the important, the important thing about Duralith's stories is that he introduced this idea of good gods and bad gods that was, you know, there's just hints of it in Lovecraft, and he really developed this whole other mythology. But what we see is that modern alien mythology follows that line much more closely. You have the good aliens, who are yeah. typically the, you know, the Aryan aliens who look <laughs> like us and are the super, space brothers, the Nordics. Yes, the space brothers, the Nordics, the super Caucasians, the super and then Caucasians. you have the evil aliens, who are the little troglodyte gray aliens who you know, have the big eyes and they're kind of evil. Yeah. And so in the most extreme version, we have, what is it? Some 30 something different species that are divided between. Um, good and oh yeah. Aliens. There, 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 there's so many. And then of course the big one is, is the reptilians and they're sometimes sort of connected to the gray, sometimes not. And I ended, I independently figured this out. And then I remember reading, uh, Michael Barkun's culture conspiracy and and just beating my head against the desk for about about a week because he had beat me to the punch and figured out that in fact a an occultist by the name of Maurice Doriol had literally lifted from Lovecraft and from his friend Frank Belknap Long what became the origins of reptilian mythology in the 1940s and 1950s. He's literally plagiarizing Lovecraft and Frank Belknap Long and the Cthulhu mythos. Oh yeah, his uh, emerald tablets of yeah, of Toth. Toth. Yeah. Oh, yes. The uh, supposedly ancient Atlantean poetry. And you can go through it. And I remember I did a blog post about it where I went through to look for the passages. And, you know, it's like almost word for word taken yeah. out of Lovecraft and Long. Uh, well, Long, it is word The famous word. story of the Hounds of Tindalos. Yeah, you've, wow. you found the Hounds of Tindalos. I showed you the – and again, Barkin had also figured this out. I showed you the Dunwich yep. stuff. You figured out the Belknap yep. Long. <laughs> Lovecraft was sort of like, okay, I'm going to change words, but it's clearly – Belknap Long, it was just like whole sentences. <laughs> Pretty much exactly word for word. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I if I remember rightly, for at one point on davidike.com, there was actually a pirate version and they eventually got scrubbed of and it's, I could be wrong about this, but I, if I remember this correctly, they're like, go look at the Simon Necronomicon. Go you know, because it's it's useful. Mm -hmm. And and so all this stuff was flim flamming back and forth. And, and I think that gets to a topic. So if you're gonna talk about Lovecraft, and I know some people don't like to talk about this, but given that we've hit this this topic in other ways, if Lovecraft is kind of mainlining Victorian racism and Victorian ideas, including racism, into into the pulp fiction. Like so there's been a lot of controversy over the last few years. Was it the World Fantasy Alliance or World Fantasy Association? There was a massive controversy and they've now removed Lovecraft as their 
icon. And like, look, I've read all of his shit. I've written about it. I've got stuff coming out about it. I've also read his personal letters. I get why they're removing him. He was really friggin' racist. And it is also in his work. I can't remember who said this. And I really need to pot- tie this down. But so- I-, I don't think it was Charles Strauss. I think it was somebody else. I think it might have been, it could have been Klingler, the new annotator, that a lot of the reason that a lot of post-Lovecraft pastiches don't work is there's something missing. And frankly, that thing is xenophobia and racism. A lot of his fiction was powered by it. I don't have a problem yeah. saying that. I don't think you could separate the fear of the outside aliens from Lovecraft's fear of the racial or national other. It's pretty much the driving force of that idea of the thing that is outside or beyond us is what is scary. Now, in Lovecraft's fiction, we do see a distinction from his own personal views. His personal views are essentially that anyone who isn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is somehow terrifying. Even though he didn't always act that way in private, you know, his wife was Jewish and he had friends who had come from different backgrounds, but he professed. He saw himself as a gentleman. He's like, I'm going to be polite, but then in the specific (laughs) and in the aggregate, he's, you know. Well, you have to be pretty polite to marry somebody if you're terrified of the. Oh, that gets in the whole other. That wasn't really just politeness, but, uh, but all the same, Lovecraft in his fiction took that sort of elemental fear and transmuted it into a broader, more cosmic fear. And he also inverted it a little bit. Because in his fiction, unlike in the real world where the idea is that white Anglo-Saxon civilization is the very best and everybody else should be kept down, in his fiction, it's a delusion that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are pretending to have civilization and pretending to have order and to keep everything running the way it should be, but that's just a mask over these seething primal horrors that he can't quite grasp and understand, but knows are the reality that we're deluding ourselves from not recognizing. And I, and I think that's an expression. There was this common this common fear of degeneracy and uh, of quote unquote going native when you get into imperialism. And of course, half of Lovecraft's stories are about oh my god, there's a reason in my bloodline or because I know a thing or something that I'm going to degenerate into an ape, into a oh, fish like man, story. into God knows what. Exactly. His story, Arthur German, Yes, this guy's name is German, and he's a white guy who's horrified to discover that his ancestor had married an ape, and so he has ape uh, blood. I mean, it's, uh, that, that story can't really, really can't more racist than that. I really just read that story, actually. I've started rereading all – I've got a couple tomes of his short stories, and they're in – chronological publishing order but anyway I, I just went over that story and that one really kind of flew through me for a loop it took me a minute to realize what was happening in the, and, in and the story the worst part about that story though is that the opening of the story is amazing this guy at his house he's doing fine he gets a box he opens the box he goes outside he pours kerosene all over himself and sets himself on fire. Yeah. That's how you open a damn story. Well, and that's why it's so puzzling because, like, today to find it. Because it's not necessary. Because I got the feeling that she wasn't, like, ape-ape. She was, like, a, oh, like an ape hybrid thing. Yeah. But the, the thing is, is, like, it gets so ugly as soon as you get oh, past yeah. that, that But it was just kind of weird. But it, it's just, like, if you take it to be, like, an interracial marriage kind of thing, it's just, yeah. like, no one would react that way today. Yeah. Well, Back oh, then, it was kind of a thing. Though. 
when, you, when say, you look at that story, though, it, that story has a, a very odd echo. The idea of a lost city with white apes and tribal things and all in the jungle. That's Michael Crichton's novel oh, yeah. Congo. And yeah. it comes pretty much directly out of that. I mean, he scrubbed it. He scrubbed it as much as he could of the racist idea, but it's still there. You can well, see I don't, it. I think that's no accident. Have you read Eaters of the Dead? Yes, I have. Have you looked at the bibliography? Yes, I have. The Necronomicon he, is he cites He cites the Al-Azif. Want to know what else about that Eaters of the Dead? Fringe historians have actually taken that and assumed that parts of that were based on not just the little bit of it that's uh, 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 actual part uh, uh, of an ancient text, uh, 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 but that the novel is based entirely on what really happened and are claiming that it's an actual account of the Vikings encountering terrible forces and See, recorded by an Arab traveler. Where I actually, I is actually this the one that got be... made into the movie, The Thirteenth Warrior? Yeah. yeah, which I like. Yes. I like that movie. It's okay. Um, I it's a very D and D movie. Yeah. You know? yeah. I actually, I actually harbor a suspicion. So now we're going to talk. We're going to be having our crossover soon with Monster Talk, and we're going to talk more about kind of like the ideas of evolution and pygmy races and fairies and all of that. I strongly suspect on October 31st, I want to say 1928 or 29, I forget which year, I think it's 28, uh, Lovecraft has this incredibly detailed dream about uh, that he, he loved the Romans. He absolutely yep. thought that he was either a Roman, if he couldn't be a Roman, <laughs> he'd be an 18th century Englishman, which is basically the same thing. <laughs> and he, he has this incredibly detailed dream that he's a Roman centurion leading troops into the Pyrenees, into the Basque area. And again, we're going to talk more about this, I think, on Monster Talk. But this, this gets into this whole notion of pre-Indo-European pygmy races inspiring the ideas of fairies. And this was really popular. And we're going to talk about Arthur Machen more. And we can talk about it a little here. I, I'd like to, actually. But they go into the hills, and everybody's terrified. And then this this bunch of Roman warriors go up in the hills on our friggin' slaughtered fighting, in essence, ancient cavemen. That's the plot of Eaters of the Dead. And he cites Al-Azif. And that dream of his, one had by that point been, I think at that point, had been published in Selected Letters. I think that's the case. And even more importantly, it had been published in Frank Belknap Long's The Horror from the Hills. Yes. Ver verbatim. I'm not saying that there's evidence that Crichton based Eaters of the Dead on that story, but if he didn't, that's an awful, <laughs> awful coincidence. Well, nothing you write today is new. Somebody's borrowing from everybody. Well, that's true, but a lot of Michael Crichton's work has Lovecraftian echoes in it. Yeah. Even his most famous uh, novel, Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. That is, you know, incredibly Lovecraftian. The idea of calling up and resurrecting titanic forces from the depths of time and losing control <laughs> over control. them. control. Do not exactly. call up what you cannot put down. Yeah, but that's just because the guard much... fell asleep. I mean, <laughs> I've seen this movie. Yeah, yeah but you know, okay, sorry. Uh, 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 life uh, finds a way. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, the so, frog, the frog gene. Hello. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Completely. Off but track. no, I, I would not be surprised, actually, if, like you're saying, several of these are and, and, he, and he pulled from other things. I mean, he grabbed from here. He grabbed from there, which, of course, well, Eaters Lovecraft of the, Eaters was the dead too. is based on an actual ancient text. Um, right. Of course. The opening segment is based on a real Arabic account of an encounter with the Vikings in the early Middle Ages. And of course, but, there's also Beowulf in the mix there too. So, which is, yeah, the Wendell. So, are but, we and, and are look, we are we being critical of Crichton for using for being no. influenced by Lovecraft, or are we no, just pointing out that we have no. a modern writer who's heavily drawing from influence if, on? Lovecraft? If you think Lovecraft was being hyper hyper original, go read Arthur Machen. 
No, no, no. I don't think he's being hyper original. I think he just did it better than no, anyone else. I'm, I'm just saying that to the audience. In fact, the good folks on the HP Podcraft, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, they kind of said that after they had started reading Muckin, they were like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Lovecraft. Okay. He, co- he copied yeah. not just the uh, atmosphere, but also some of the specific forms of oh, yeah. Muckin stories. In some cases, almost point for point and and, and uh, owning up to it owning up to it i mean he opens yeah. if I remember correctly the dunwich horror which is clearly the great god pan with a quote from the great god pan i mean there's no real hiding it no of course not yeah there's a you know a lot of mutual influence in the world of weird fiction where people were intentionally modeling their work on those earlier writers and drawing forth those ideas and themes not just because they were being unoriginal or because they admired the person but also because that sort of copying and recycling created more of the illusion of depth by echoing yeah. what had come before and drawing it into their own particular worldview. Nice. Well, and, and, and Sarah mentioned fanfic. I mean, kind of, I honestly, so Lovecraft lived with his aunts. He didn't have a lot of money, couldn't hold it down a job, was constantly <laughs> online, excuse me, writing letters. I mean, he's, He's a very familiar figure. He's he's kind of like the sort of the internet geek long before you have internet. He he really is in many ways. And you know, I'm not saying he'd be part of the alt right, but kind of sort of would with his, <laughs> a lot of his ideas. Uh, and and I think that actually gets to why I think it's so hard to have some of these conversations, or maybe it's not that hard, but some of these conversations about him. I mean, we continuously harp on the idea that if you're sort of incubating in alternative archaeology or pseudo-archaeology, old Victorian ideas, you're going to be bringing a lot of awful baggage with you. And I think that's one of the reasons why, I mean, some people don't want to talk about Lovecraft and geekery and all of his, his really nasty warts, but I think you have to, because if he is inspiring things like almost everything, I mean, both you know, both DC well, and animated have, they have it. Jeb, yeah. I see what you're saying. But we've both, all, all three of us have acknowledged that the love, that Lovecraft has A, become a genre, and B, has legs of its own. And then they are not the same legs that H.P. Lovecraft was using. So, yeah, it's influencing a lot of modern stuff, but it's kind of like the steampunk thing at this point. You know, it's it's a reimagining of it and a reuse of it. And, and, and when s- that happens, it gets filtered and a lot of the bad gets taken out of it, which is why, you know, you guys were saying earlier, one of the things that's missing out of the Lovecraft is the out of the, the newer Lovecraft stuff is the racism. And that's because it's intentionally being left out. But I think it has to be filtered actively and i think that's why these conversations are being filtered actively though i don't think many people are unaware of at least the tacit racism in at least his writings it's pretty evident in his writing i don't know if we want to name i don't think we want to name names because i don't want to get into that fight but there are some very (laughs) prominent people with an interest in lovecraft who are like don't talk about this that much but they're interested in the writing and they're interested in the world of lovecraft they may not be interested in lovecraft as a person is what i'm saying yeah, but I don't think you can well, the, separate it. You can't really separate, though, Lovecraft's fiction from the racism in it. Many of his stories are not explicitly racist, but they still Though have there are some undercurrents. That are. Oh, yes, there, right, there, right. there are some that are explicitly so. The horror right, right. Red Hook is a great example of that. It's Deduces coil. racist. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that racist. there isn't racism in his in his original writings, and I'm not saying that you can ignore it. I'm saying that people who are fans of it are fans of the world and the mythos itself and the idea and the atmosphere 
And as modern writers are taking it and running with it, it's being filtered and being reused in a modern setting. And so you're losing a lot of the things that we now find very tasteless. Well, that's also the argument that the uh, fringe archaeologists and the ancient astronaut theorists make about why they should be able to recycle Victorian anthropology and archaeology for their claims. And they say, well, I'm not a racist. But so when I use these ideas and theories, you know, they might have originated in racism, but they're not racist anymore because I'm not personally a racist. And that gets to the question of how much can you remove from an idea before it's no longer the idea anymore. When you talk about things like Atlantis or mound builder myths or ancient astronaut theories, they originate in racist ideas. And when you recycle them and reuse them, no matter how you try recasting it, that baggage comes with you, even if only well, in echo from the past. Well, I think the Lovecraft case is, is an interesting one because there are people who very strongly – so I think it can't be done passively. I think it can't just be like, you're, oh, we don't do that now because I think what Jason's saying is absolutely correct. If you're just like, well, we don't do that now, but it's it's in there. Like it's, it's deep in the bones. My favorite post-Lovecraft is A Colder War. By Charles Strauss. And this is available online. So we will link this in the show notes. It is – I find it absolutely terrifying because what he did is he takes the thing that's missing, that race and all that, and he stuffs it full of nuclear war. And mm-hmm. it is horrifying. And I think it's great as a result. It's the only one that I've ever read since Lovecraft. I'm like, OK, this works in my opinion. And no offense to anybody, but it's just it's just awesome. But I think that's why we have to have these conversations and why this stuff has to be really, frankly, interrogated. Because I think if it's very passive then this stuff just kind of like latches on for the ride. It kind of hides underneath, not unlike, you know, deep one genetics. I think well, exactly. it has to be. You can't have the idea of tainted blood without dealing explicitly with yeah. the implications. Yeah, of what, it. what the hell does that mean? And, and, I, and so, and, and Sarah, you were saying like that people are doing different things. And I think they have to actually do a different thing. They can't just do the thing minus, they have to be doing something else with it that really transforms it. And I don't know if that then kind of crosses over to some of the kinds of topics we talk about, but in this fictional stuff, I think that's kind of how that works. And that's just – that's an interesting sort of parallel whether you could sort of do – I mean and we've run into this. We've taught – like when we had Stacey Dunn on, you know, is there a difference between one kind of alternative archaeology and another kind of alternative archaeology? And some people would say, no, what's your kind of pulling from this? And when we had David on, we talked about like black Olmec, white Egypt and all that. Once you're pulling from – is it the fruit of, fruit of a poison tree? You know, uh, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I think that's a really complicated yeah. conversation to have because there's so many nuances to it. I mean, it's easy to just kind of wipe everything off and say, no, you can't use it at all because, you know, dude was racist. And I'm not defending that in any way, shape or form, obviously, if you've listened to the show. But it's interesting to see. It's interesting to me to see how it's being evolved over the years and yeah. seeing what it's developing into. Because it, it, it is. It's going to develop. It's going to continue to develop. It's going to continue to be used. I mean, Cthulhu's yeah. really big right now. And not just plushy Cthulhu. I mean, like, the story and the feel. I mean, how many fucking shows are there on the air right now that you could, or movies that oh, yeah. you can directly link back to concepts Though, of Cthulhu? I would ask the question how many of the people that make these things and watch them or read them or whatever them, play them, a lot of them are games, have very even Lovecraft. I mean, a lot of them, what they've done is they've 
play the game. Yeah, that's my point. A lot of the people that are that are in love with the idea of the world that Lovecraft created have never directly interacted with Lovecraft's original writings. They're interacting with people who are inspired by and then written. And then those people who were inspired by that second generation and that third generation. So that that gets back to what Jason does. Yeah. It's a pretty good metaphor for how a lot of fringe history works, including the whole myth of the watchers. A lot of the people who are second, third, fourth, even by now, hundredth wave right. <laughs> uh, have no real idea of where it came from and are simply yeah. repeating what had been repeated and repeated and repeated going all the way back to the Middle Ages and late antiquity. Right. So because they don't know where it came from, they end up pulling unintentionally bad ideas and very strange concepts that have no basis in fact and some that have disturbing implications and they draw that forward because they don't know the history that they're drawing from. And and that's interesting because at the heart of this, we were talking about the Necronomicon, and that's very famously a grimoire, a book of magic in many respects. And I have heard it argued that grimoires, part of the whole point, is to copy and modify and transfer knowledge that's what's come before. But if you're doing that without like Xing out things that don't work, if you're doing that without critically trimming, then you end up exactly where we are, where it's like, Everything kind of goes. Things that make no sense now continue. Things that were awful before continue. And it's one thing if it's fiction. It's a whole other thing if you're like trying to understand the origins of the planet. So it sounds like the bottom line is we want more critical thinking, which is the one thing that fringe people are probably never going to do. That is honestly true. Well, Jason, Please. thank you very much for being on the show. Yes, we got You're into very some, welcome. we got in some serious depth here with with some of this stuff that's just like that was kind of awesome with the pyramid stuff, the specifics there, and I think that's really great that you could bring that. And if like I said, if we can kind of continue talking about these stuff, we'd love to have you on again in the future. We'll and have to talk maybe, about Lovecraft and alien abduction next time. Ooh. Oh, is that a thing? Oh, are we are we going Jason a little? Jason has going, thrown down the gauntlet. I like are, are we are we talking are we talking about uh, the worms of the earth in Vermont? Is that what we're talking about? Just a little. The whisperer in darkness. Yes, that's where I was going. Yes, we we will talk about that. All right. Thank you very much, and we we will try to keep this as weird as possible. Thank you very much for being on the show, and we will talk to both of you later. Roundhouses and Romans, human evolution makes us not. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to rate and like us wherever you listen. Be sure to comment on this episode and share us with your friends. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show page. Show notes and downloads can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can also follow the blog at ArchieFantasies.com and follow us on Twitter at ArchieFantasies. Music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcast Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening. dinosaurs! See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.